I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are syndicated and on air nationally across the U.S. and internationally in Ghana and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, we bring you three conversations, two on one theme. Dump Trump, the Donald, he of the comb over posse, GOP contender, subject of media fascination, facing the power of protest. Shut it down. From Chicago to St. Louis, the soundtrack is protest. And endorsonomics, from Ben Carson to black pastors to white Christians. What do these endorsements reveal? From our body politic to the politics of our bodies. Beautiful, so why banned? 30 seconds of plus-sized women in an ad labeled indecent. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Monifa Bandele and Dr. Brittany Cooper. Dr. Brittany Cooper is a scholar, writer, and public intellectual. Dr. Cooper is Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Monifa Bandele is a Senior Campaign Director of MomsRising.org, a member of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, and is on the Steering Committee of Communities United for Police Reform. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thanks for having me. Hi. We start with the first of two conversations on one theme. Donald Trump. Dump Trump. The Donald. He of the Comover Posse. GOP contender. Subject of media fascination. Facing the power of protest. Shut it down. From Chicago to St. Louis. The soundtrack is protest. As a coalition... We were protesting Donald Trump's hateful speech and um, his attempts to divide the nation. But um, as students, we were protesting. We had small groups, and each group protested one different idea. So the group that I personally was in was protesting his stances on refugees and immigrants. Um, another group was protesting his hateful speech about Muslims. Another group about um, Mexicans. Another group about um, blacks and his the things that he was saying about them. Um, so and these groups were dispersed throughout the audience and. Um, that's how we felt that we could get our point across um, and just reach kind of maximum um, disturbance kind of throughout his speech. The sounds of voices organized by black, Latino and Muslim student activists and organizations at the scheduled March 11th University of Illinois at Chicago Donald Trump rally. You also heard Yasmin Oligar, a University of Illinois sophomore student and president of Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Protests had been organized inside and outside the Chicago Pavilion, where the rally was set to take place by the student activists. They came from a range of organizations, including the Muslim Student Association, the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, and Asata's Daughters. On hearing about the March 11th rally, student activists and organizers went online 
A Facebook page called Stop Trump was created, gathering thousands of likes. A MoveOn.org petition attracted almost 50,000 signatures. Here's Yasmin Olagar again from an interview on Democracy Now! explaining how the students organized. What the students basically did was on Friday, um, a group chat was created of all of the student organization leaders who wished to be a part of it. And throughout the weekend from last Friday, um, Saturday and Sunday, we were kind of planning, but it was really sporadic. So we decided to have a meeting. So on Monday night, we all decided to meet. And um, we decided that day that we would have a a protest inside and we would have a protest outside. Um, And the organizing actually uh, surprisingly went pretty smoothly. And throughout the week, we just talked to each other. We divided into smaller groups. The power of the students' organized protest prompted this reaction. Mr. Trump just arrived in Chicago, and after meeting with law enforcement, has determined that for the safety of all the tens of thousands of people that have gathered in and around the arena, tonight's rally will be postponed until another day. Thank you very much for your attendance, and please go in peace. Cancelled based on police advice, said Donald Trump's camp. Uh, not true, said the Chicago police. We were informed that the event was being cancelled. Uh, the Chicago Police Department had no role. We were not consulted or provided uh, an opinion as to whether or not the event should be cancelled. Uh, in fact, I can tell you that we did assure the Trump campaign that we had uh, more than adequate resources outside the UIC pavilion. Uh, and that we uh, guaranteed them that we could provide safe access and exit for Mr. Trump. And at the same time, we were uh, confident that we were providing uh, security for uh, both the attendees that were going to the pavilion, uh, supporters of Mr. Trump, and uh, the protesters that uh, were outside the pavilion. This was a victory of organized protest. Trump supporters had faced off with anti-Trump activists and organizers. The rally showed a Trump supporter photographed making a Nazi salute. Trump had condemned the protests, the activists and organizers as thuggery. In fact, it is Trump who appears to both incite violence by his supporters towards protesters and has said he would pay the legal fees of one rally attendee who sucker punched a protester. I'd like to punch him in the face, knock the crap out of him. They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. Stories, video and images of black and brown protesters heckled, attacked, bloodied, shoved, punched, pushed and thrown out of rallies have been seen again and again. Watching black and brown bodies circled by white anger, a simmering violence incited by Donald Trump feels like living history. The video and images conjure historical spaces of single black bodies surrounded by white supremacist rage and violence. And yet activists continue to organize, show up, protest, raising their voices among largely white rallies whose clarion call is, quote, make America great again, unquote. The Illinois primary took place on March 15th, as did primaries in Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Missouri and St. Louis. And it was in St. Louis where activists organized with a rallying cry, shut it down. And shut it down they did for over 10 minutes, voices hoarse before police appeared to drag protesters out. Arrests were made. Another anti-Trump activist was apparently attacked by a Trump supporter, prompting a daily news headline the next day with a picture of the bloodied activist and the headline, quote, blood on Don's hands, unquote. 
Let's talk the power of organized protest within America's political system. Trump rally Wahala as the primaries continue. Manifa Bandele, let me start with you. And I'm really impressed and I'm very thankful to all of the young people in Chicago who organized that protest. It makes me really happy to know that people aren't just um, outraged by the current rhetoric of Donald Trump, but that we have a long memory. I mean, many of us remember back to the 90s when Donald Trump here in New York took out a full-page ad calling for the execution of the Central Park Five. And these were five children who were falsely accused of an attack uh, here in New York City. And the only thing standing between them and being, you know, not with us today, having been killed back then, was the fact that New York City had recently had a moratorium, excuse me, New York State had a moratorium on the death penalty at that time. So he is beyond dangerous. And so I think that's what you're seeing in the streets and at these rallies is that people are turning out and turning up because we don't want someone with that level of insensitivity, um, that level of murderous intent um, in a higher office of power. He already wields lots and lots of power um, here in New York City and across the country. But just imagine if he were in higher office. So I'm thankful for them, for their action, and for having that long memory of what Trump really stands for. Dr. Brittany Cooper. You know, I'm really, really um, concerned about the volatile nature uh, and the fundamentally dishonest nature of Trump's political rhetoric. Uh, and, and it's manifesting in ways that, that should be deeply concerning for us all. So he has, over the course of many months at this point, uh, very slowly but very intentionally and explicitly incited his crowds to violence uh, by saying things to them like, you know, in the old days they would know uh, what they were going to get if they came here. Uh, So he doesn't use uh, explicit racial language when he's talking about black people, but he certainly invokes very charged histories of white racial violence. Uh, to incite his crowds. And then he is quite explicit in his disdain uh, for Muslim Americans and Muslim immigrants and for Mexican Americans and Mexican immigrants. Uh, and so, so one, there's this, this explicit and implicit racial disdain that he's getting away with uh, in this country in a way that I didn't, I thought that after Barack Obama, certainly we were not a post-racial society, but there seemed to be uh, a a kind of obliqueness to the way that we talked about race, and now it has become explicitly antagonistic uh, in ways that even I, with my history, long knowledge of the history of American racial politics, did not anticipate. Um, I think... Uh, the other thing is that then there's dishonesty. So he is saying all of this racially antagonistic stuff, but when you talk to his supporters, they see it as that they are being recognized as people who are downtrodden. And so he is very much tapping into a deep-seated kind of white rage uh, about uh, the failing economy on the one hand and about uh, the colorization of America, as Jeff Chang calls it, on the other hand, uh, and he's tapping into that. And so these folks who feel marginalized, even though structurally they really are not, feel empowered by his rhetoric and feel emboldened by his rhetoric to commit actual acts of violence against protesters. Uh, in re- so with regard to that, the fact that these young women, these young activists come together in this multiracial coalition, uh, this multi-ethnic coalition to say no people of color fare well under a Trump presidency, and so we all need to come together to shut this down, uh, is I think also a significant turning point in terms of uh, how the Black Lives 
Matter movement writ large is gaining allies to the cause as well um, and helping to um, create the basis for um, uh, coalition and solidarity uh, in Chicago. And what that has meant uh, here recently is that uh, in this week's uh, election there in Chicago, they unseated the district attorney uh, because of much of this organizing for young people. So it's not even just the power of protest, but they are also making significant inroads into local electoral politics. One of the most um, beautiful elements um, of watching activists insert themselves into these spaces of kind of naked anger and this volatility is it's almost like watching the pages of history books come alive uh, in this moment where, yes, Trump, as you said, Brittany, avoids the kind of nakedly overt um, racist language that is very, very familiar uh, when it comes to America's racial politics. But the nature of the hostility is very recognizable and it's definitely a signal that comforts his supporters who are largely white. But seeing these young um, activists, sometimes alone, refusing to be shut down and insisting on having a voice heard or insisting on articulating their protest in the midst of all of this, you know, watching that young girl be shoved through an entire um, audience is disturbing on the one hand, but I'm struck again and again and again by a courage that has pushed America to a justice that she continues to deny the very people that keep pushing her towards that um, justice. Another thing that intrigues me is the idea of um, how um, Jamel Bowie is writing this in Slate, talking about the Obama era and the way in which the symbolic power of a black man in the office that has always been occupied by white masculinity in a very specific way, next to the rise of Donald Trump, kind of unleashed all the um, the fear from the economic collapse and the, the manufactured fear that the presence of any kind of justice around um, black people seems to ignite when it comes to the white um, lower middle class and the white working class. And he writes in Slade, he talks about, quote, the Obama era that didn't herald a post-racial America as much as it did a racialized one, unquote. Um, which I think, well, that implies that it wasn't racialized before Obama got there, which is simply not true of, of um, America. But I certainly think, and I wanted to ask you both to respond to the idea of watching a visible elevation of people of color in all kinds of areas, whether it's the mainstream cable news, um, the, the presence of a first family on, the, on, the da- on a daily basis, in tandem with a collapsing economy and the deindustrialization of America and the ways in which that ties into an unleashing of uh, white middle class um, rage and the politics of fear that are so always used to ramp up the Republican base. What does that mean for us as we kind of um, barrel into the very likelihood that Trump is going to be the GOP um, contender against at this stage, very probably Hillary. What does that mean for you all? What does that mean when you think about that, Monifa? I really feel that white supremacy doesn't need an excuse. You know, I really feel genuinely and truly that we're in a time where people have 
access to hearing what one another has to say in a way that we never have before. And so we're really unearthing what has always and already been there, regardless of the Obama administration. And actually, the economy is actually doing better, especially in a lot of these places uh, where we are seeing this kind of like organized white rage. So I, so I almost think like, you know, like it, it doesn't really need an excuse to manifest. I think what we're seeing is a platform like never before where people are able to um, voice this through social media. Um, Donald Trump is actually a platform as well because they can kind of mobilize and come out to his rallies. And I do hear things like, you know, membership and certain organizations are on the rise. Um, but, you know, you, you don't wake up one day decide that you're going to be a white supremacist, right? <laughs> you know, I think that these sentiments have existed and, can, have, you know, have existed for centuries in the United States, and there's never been a serious conversation within the white community about how to dismantle white supremacy. You know, there's been this path of, well, maybe if we don't talk about race and then maybe if we put black faces in high places and it's not there, we, you know, we're okay. We know that that doesn't work with, like, cancer and any other ailment. Like, if you don't actually treat the disease, it's, it's, it doesn't go away. And, and in my opinion, I think that's what really we're seeing. We're seeing what America really is at this moment in time. And it, it, it provides us an opportunity to, to say, how do we dismantle this? You know, is there even a desire from our allies, from progressive whites, to dismantle this? Um, when someone gets on a stage and talks about um, – you know, building a wall around Mexicans and deporting Muslim people, you know, which clearly flies in the face of what's written on paper that the United States is about. What is, the, what is their response to that in their homes and, and across the dinner tables? Because if we're not seeing it out in the streets, we know they're not combating it across the dinner table. So, um, so I think, yes, it is glaring for someone who already is a white supremacist to see um, you know, uh, Barack Obama and the first family in the White House, it is probably, you know, triggering for them to also experience or at least think they're experiencing some type of downturn in their local economy. But at the end of the day, when people uh, want to express this deep-seated, uh, you know, their uh, racism, they'll find an excuse in anything. They'll find an excuse in, like, the horoscope, Right. So the, the, these platforms that have now come out are just really showing us what's already there. Dr. Brittany Cooper? You know, I, I think <laughs> I think slightly different about it, Monifa. Um, uh, one of the things, so, you know, I teach white kids is, is like, is my job. I teach them about uh, constructions of race, gender, and sexuality. And I have always uh, young white college students who are, always appalled when we do histories of racism they're they're very clear morally about the the problems with the things that their ancestors did the kind of crimes that their ancestors perpetrated against black people and they they will say that that's bad their issue becomes you know they often will say to me uh, in the very early stages of trying to come to anti-racist consciousness that they shouldn't be blamed for the things that their ancestors did but they don't actually think that any of that stuff was acceptable to do and they will very clearly sort of morally disagree with it. And so what is very interesting to me is that these same young people, when I look at the demographic makeup of these rallies and of uh, Trump supporters and to a certain extent even uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, um, 
there are these young white folks who who are really behind them who are who are at the Trump rallies uh showing out and being violent towards uh black protesters and not understanding how very much uh visually the the pictures from these rallies look like the lynch mobs of old and look like the kind of um kind of mob white mob mentalities from the 19th and early 20th centuries. And so I've been really trying to figure out how young people who can look at those old pictures and old photographs and even talk to me about how their people are racist then show up to these rallies uh, and act just like them. And so I think that there is an interesting psychology to this in that for the last couple of decades, really since the Reagan era, the GOP has propagated a brand of civil racism. So they use lots of racially coded language and lots of dog whistle politics to certainly to shore up this very kind of sentiment, but the whole goal of it is for them to have people to believe in their hearts these sort of antagonistic things about black people and people of color, but to then argue that, uh, that this is really a sort of race-neutral kind of uh, turn to conservative policymaking. And so in some ways what we're seeing is that the, the chickens are coming home to roost uh, for the GOP because now Donald Trump, who just doesn't care, just gives no dams at all, uh, is you know engaged in a brand of incivil racism or uncivil racism where he says very explicitly the kinds of things that the GOP has been implicitly invested in uh, for several decades. Uh, and so I think that, that that becomes the challenge. It's also this issue about, um, the, and, and, and Esther, I'm helped here by a lot of the work that you have done around the concept of emotional justice. So I do think that young college students who are coming out in an economy where even though the economy has technically recovered, wage stagnation is real. So even though there are some levels of white middle class that are raising in wealth, um, when folks get jobs, they aren't getting them at wages that are actually sustainable long term, and they aren't making uh, statistically yet the kinds of wealth that uh, that like uh, that they should be making in terms of where their parents were making it a generation ago. And so I think young folks of all races are coming out of school and looking at an economy whose prospects don't look like the kind of prospects that they were promised or that built the middle class of the 20th century. And I think they have real fear and real anxiety about that. Uh, and the long history of this is that when white folks want to, the white elite want to turn attention away from the way that their tax cuts uh, concentrate wealth in the top 1% or the top 5%, they use this kind of very explicit racial language to create additional division. So they've built a racialized economy that's already built on these black-white divisions, but then they deploy the rhetoric in really explicit and virulent ways in these moments to then foment of that sense of division so that you then don't actually think together about the relationship between um, racial antagonism uh, and, and classism and, and the concentration of wealth. And so it's a really insidious kind of strategy, but it's an old and unoriginal strategy and has worked over and over again for the better part of 150 years. Uh, and we're seeing it uh, come to fruition again uh, in ways that I think are very scary because we don't then get to talk about how there's a, a nice segment of the white electorate who is also being emotionally emotionally manipulated by the likes of someone who is rich like Donald Trump, who I think uses racial rhetoric, but I think he doesn't give a flip. He will say whatever he needs to say to get elected, and I don't think that it is actually about, I don't think he cares about anyone but himself, and I think that in this moment, using racial language as a way to reflect his sort of megalomaniacal personality is the way he goes about it. Uh, 
And so this is what's working for him now. But if a different thing worked for him later, he would say that too. Given that analysis from the two of you, can Trump win? Absolutely. There is no, you know, um, white rage and anger, particularly in its most dishonest forms, is one of the most dangerous weapons of white supremacy uh, because it is emboldening this young generation of white folks who thought that they were more progressive than their grandparents to actually go out to the polls and vote for someone who doesn't even have their own policy interests at heart. And the only thing I know in the history of American politics that causes white people to consistently vote against their own economic interests just as a baseline test uh, is a belief in, in white supremacy and racial ideology. Uh, so I think we should be very, very concerned. Um, I think that if, um, if, a polit- if some politician uh, on the left does not really step in and have a very reasoned conversation that that gets to the heart of the matter, that that names for white people their fear and anger and says to them, you know, we're more reasonable than this, we can be better than this, Uh, unless someone manages to really mobilize that kind of narrative that appeals to white folks' own um, investment in being seen as civil and reasonable, even in the face of clear racial atrocity, uh, then I think that we have a real concern on our hands and a real possibility for a Trump presidency. Manifa, can Trump win? Yeah, I definitely think it's possible. It reminds me of Octavia Butler's book, Parable of the Sower. I mean, it's really scary. Um, we also saw this in 2012 with the congressional elections, you know, the quote-unquote Tea Party takeover. People will vote against their own interests and and celebrate it even while their their economic situation declines. So you see a stark contrast in access to things like health care, uh, quality jobs in these places where people have elected Tea Party leaders in their state. And they're just fine with it and they defend them vehemently. So there's people who have access to stuff in some states that they don't even have access to, you know, that they need. You know, and and that's just fine with them as long as this this uh, rage is being tapped into this idea. Well, at least I'm better than these people over there in my in my low state. There's someone lower than me um, seems to work. So can it work for national um, for the executive office? Absolutely. Well, we definitely cannot sit down in this moment. Time to get up. Time to stand up. Time to do like Bob Marley said. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Don't give up the fight.
That was the first of our two Dump Trump conversations. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Dr. Brittany Cooper and Manifa Bandele. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the U.S., in Arizona, Ohio, North and South Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for our second Dump Trump discussion. Endorse Sonomics. Endorsing Donald Trump from Ben Carson to black pastors to white Christians. African-American GOP former presidential contender Ben Carson has dropped out of the race. The official phrase, he has suspended his campaign. And Carson has thrown his weight behind Donald Trump. Here he is explaining that decision. Now, some people have said, well, why, why would you uh, get behind a man like Donald Trump? I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, I've come to, to know uh, Donald Trump over the last few years. He's actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There are two different Donald Trumps. There's the one you see on the stage, and there's the one who's very uh, cerebral, sits there and considers things very carefully. You can have a very good conversation with him. Um, and that's the Donald Trump that you're going to start seeing more and more of right now. And some people said, but, well, you know, he said terrible things about you. How can you support him? Well, first of all, we buried the hatchet. That was political stuff. Um, and, you know, that happens in American politics. The politics of personal destruction, all that. Uh, is not something that I particularly believe in or anything that I get involved in. Um, but I do recognize that it is a part of the process. We move on because it's not about me. It's not about Mr. Trump. It's about America. The retired African-American neurosurgeon, Yale graduate, Detroit, Michigan-born GOP contender had announced his candidacy on May 2, 2015. On March 4th, he suspended it. He also announced he would be the new national chairman of My Faith Votes, a group that encourages Christians to exercise their civic duty to vote. From a retired neurosurgeon to a black pastor of a megachurch, Daryl Scott. Reverend Daryl Scott is senior pastor of the New Spirit Revival Center in Cleveland Heights, a non-denominational megachurch that grew out of Thursday night Bible studies to the point where in 2006 it counted 3,000 active members. Pastor Scott joined a group of pastors and reverends leading other black megachurches for a meeting with Donald Trump at Trump Towers in 2015. Their move to meet and endorse Trump prompted headlines, an open letter penned by activists, scholars, thinkers, writers, including Dr. Brittany Cooper. And subsequently, reports emerged that it was not a full endorsement by the 100 pastors and their thousand-strong congregation. Here is Reverend Daryl Scott speaking at a Trump Cleveland, Ohio rally, explaining his support. I want to give you all a little backstory of my relationship with Mr. Donald Trump. I met Mr. Trump over five years ago in a personal meeting that was organized by a mutual friend. And to be honest, I went into the meeting somewhat prejudicially. I went in with a, an opinion of him that had been formed 
through media portrayals. How many of you know what I'm talking about? In that meeting, I asked Mr. Trump some very direct and pointed questions, questions about race and race relations, and I received very direct answers from Mr. Trump that erased all of my preconceptions. He told us at that meeting that he was very concerned about the condition that our country was in and the direction that our country was proceeding in. And he asked us simply to pray for him. He said, I would that you guys pray for me, that God gives me wisdom and God leads me in the right direction in my decision-making processes. And to be honest, I went away with a very different perspective and very, very different opinion of Mr. Donald Trump. Now, some of you might be surprised at this statement that I'm about to make, but I found Mr. Trump not only to be very gracious and very hospitable, but I also found Mr. Donald Trump to be a very humble man. And he's very, very respectful of clergy. Through that meeting five years ago, I developed a friendship with Mr. Uh, Michael Cohen, who's special counsel and EVP to Mr. Donald Trump, and we maintained contact through the succeeding year so that when we informed him, uh, when he informed me that Mr. Trump was going to run, I said, tell the big guy I'm in, and I'm all the way in. Say amen. We met with Mr. Trump again this past September, a group of clergy, and we spoke to him very directly about the economy about race relations, about schools, about jobs, about America's crumbling infrastructure. And we discussed the Middle East, we discussed ISIS, we discussed America's military, we discussed immigration, we discussed national defense, very, very candidly. So then, my personal objective in this rally is for you to form an opinion of Donald Trump that is not based upon what the liberal media wants to brainwash you with. born and raised in Cleveland. I know how we are. I know how we roll. I know how we think. All of you are here today because you are independent thinkers. You all are free thinkers. You all are smart, intelligent people. They tried to act like Mr. Trump appeals to a bunch of dummies. I beg to differ with you. From a black pastor of a megachurch to a white Christian with best-selling books, Joel Osteen. Preacher, tele-evangelist, senior pastor of Lakewood Church, described as the largest Protestant church in the United States. Osteen dropped into New York Fox Radio Studios to promote his latest book, but also had some supportive words for Donald Trump. Take a listen. Mr. Trump, he's a he's a he's a you know incredible communicator and brander, like like Mr. like President Clinton said, and you know you know he's been a friend a friend to our ministry. He's a, he's, a, he's a good man. You know, I root for the Giants, but and I know it. So I want the Giants to win when I watch because I have bias. Do you think that if I say that our country is exceptional, if, if, if I say that we are extraordinary like no other and, and history's finest, uh, finest uh, construction of a nation, am I being biased because I live here, or do I have some? Do, is there something of substance do I have to go on? What do you think? Well, I don't know. I think probably a little bit of bias, but I would be believe though too like you that our country is great right now maybe it is a little little bit of bias especially if you haven't traveled but you know you and i have probably both traveled well, i've traveled i'm sure you have too and you know you come back and 
you know, just speaking of America, I mean, I, I like it more when I come back. Yeah, right? I'm telling you, everybody. And, you know, we have we have probably a thousand or hundreds of people that come to our services every week from around the, around the, the world. And, man, they all love being here in America. So, I'm again, I'm an optimist and I'm, I'm biased in that we live in a great place. Right. So when you look out in your congregation, what faces do you see? What all areas? Faces. What's back? Oh, boy, I was just telling somebody we probably have thousands of Nigerians and, you know, Hispanics. Houston's his 50 percent Hispanic and I just see there's probably a hundred nations represented every it's it's like the UN it's an it's an amazing place from Ben Carson to black pastors to white Christians let's talk endorsonomics the politics of endorsement what do they reveal about this moment Dr. Brittany Cooper let me start with you you know as a someone who is a self-proclaimed progressive Christian I just am totally annoyed and upset with this foolishness uh, on behalf of the evangelical church. Now, look, it's entirely consistent uh, for the religious right in the United States to endorse the GOP, uh, and that is a strategy that was really born in the late 70s and early 80s and is deeply tethered to um, a politics of white dominance and white supremacy. Uh, what bothers me is that I think uh, black evangelical churches have really let down their parishioners because the way that they um, frame the theology of Christianity is one that is all about individual sin and personal responsibility, and so it frequently fails to give people the kind of language and tools to think about um, the way that moral language gets deployed uh, to oppress people. And it bothers me because, of course, in my view, you can't read a uh, Christian text and understand Jesus as anything other than someone who is standing up to a powerful Roman empire that is oppressing people and saying to them, this is no way for people to live, and I'm willing to risk my life uh, for this point of view. Uh, and so that, so it is, it is deeply dishonest, and it's a poor reading of theology, and it's a reading of theology that really um, oppresses uh, people of color, particularly black people. Uh, and so it has them, like, doing things like Joel Osteen does, which is to say, well, Trump is a good man. A good man does not use racist language, does not... Um, incite violence at his rallies does not say that we does not support policies in which we economically uh, impoverish countries all over the world and then uh, hoard that wealth in the U.S. context and then re- prevent people from coming here um, to try to make a life for themselves if we, after we have made it impossible in terms of our economic policy for them to make a life for themselves in the countries in which they were born. And that's essentially the whole of how American economic policy works. Uh, and then we sort of tether this very conservative understanding of Christianity to that in the evangelical church and think that that is something like justice and something like love. Uh, and so uh, I think that when I look at, like, black megachurch pastors, many of these men um, are trying to ally themselves with Trump because they want access to the halls of power. They can't theologically justify any of the things that they're doing, uh, not when you dig deeper and ask more than one or two questions, but many of them want to, to have connections to these powerful men because it becomes a justification um, for the power of their ministries. And, and so uh, it makes them look like they are more powerful to the people who choose to follow them. Uh, and, and I think that this is a really uh, insidious, uh, problematic, and dangerous uh, form of rhetoric uh, in our communities. And, you know, it, it, it makes it's clear to me why so many folks are not invested in all of the projects of Western Christianity because this is the worst. 
uh, iteration of Western Christianity uh, that we have. It is the most violent, most oppressive uh, version of it. Uh, and the most dominant form, uh, but it becomes really, really interesting to me when I see black folks who don't actually vote for the GOP in large numbers following these pastors who, pro- you know, who propagate a kind of uh, Republican conservative narrative that is so antithetical to black life. Uh, and I really uh, am very passionate about trying to get our folks to realize that we can think a different way about about this, but that ultimately we have to remember that our theology reflects our politics, and so uh, and our politics reflect our theology. So if we uh, say that we believe in a sort of revolutionary, uh, you know, divine figure, uh, then we need to to really be thinking about how to tear down these systems of power rather than putting people in power that shore them up. Manitha Bandele. Yeah, I mean, this is opportunism at its best. Um, these pastors, Ben Carson, know that the best opportunities for them are in a place where there's very little competition in the field. You know, they're looking at people like Clarence Thomas, who, if not for the fact that he was a Republican, was a mediocre justice at best. I mean, he, he, he hardly, you know, he hardly has any position, says anything on like the last 10 major Supreme Court decisions. But he's perfectly fine with being this, this puppet, you know, what was the term Melissa Harris Perry used? A bobblehead. I'm um, a silent one at that, um, because the upward mobility within his party is is uh is great compared to if he were in any other political party. Why? Because they don't have any black people. Right? So, you know, so you're Ben Carsons, these pastors, they see an opportunity for fame, for power, for access in a way that they would not have in a more crowded field in a field where people had, um, who were more genuine, had better skills, had better understanding of public policy, are better jurists, right? So, so it, with, their, with their mediocrity, they're able to go and, and, and be important in these spaces, have a platform next to a Donald Trump where they can speak to tens of thousands of people. As far as the white Christian evangelicals, I think this is about a consolidation of power, um, they know that within their ranks that they have these sentiments, and they don't want to offend or put off many members of their of their following. And so there's a consolidation of power that, again, betrays us, betrays our communities, betrays the faith that, you know, many people in our communities have in these religious and spiritual leaders, and it's very sad. Um, as far as Ben Carson, you know, this entire run was really a way for him to position himself and give himself new relevance relevancy. And that couldn't have happened with such ease in any other place than within the Republican Party. I'm struck by the path between um, from pastors to politicians and specifically about the way in which listening to Daryl Scott, I think of the idea of privileging your own individual selfishness and lust for power over the institutional well-being of your entire congregation for what you know, because I believe he does know, for what you know is um, something that would not do well for the majority of the people who come to your church on a regular basis. Um, I'm struck by the political um, dishonesty, but I'm even more struck by the emotional dishonesty and the emotional manipulation of the need that congregants come to church with and that being so flagrantly abused 
by people like um, Daryl Scott and um, Joel Osteen in this language that uses the word that he's a good man. It uses this very, very generic language that goes completely against the reality of what we've seen at rally upon rally upon rally upon rally. And if you took the the lives of the congregants, of any individual congregant in their churches and applied what Trump's America would do to that individual, there's nothing good about that. And I don't think those pastors need to be told that. They already know. And so I'm, I'm struck by the kind of naked narcissism um, coming from pastors like um, Daryl Scott and the absolute cowardice of um, pastors like Joel Osteen, who also knows that, you know, he, the, the biggest church arguably in the United States. So and you're safe no matter who's in government, but the people who come to your church on a regular basis seeking all kinds of um, strength and support uh, and, and looking to bolster their faith uh, would be so wounded and destroyed by the application of the kinds of policies that Trump would um, manifest. And so I'm really struck by the, you know, the naked lust for individual power and that individual power masquerading as institutional well-being. Um, and I think uh, Scott and Osteen should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. And invoking um, God and invoking Jesus is just the very, very worst. So let's go get black Jesus and his baby girl with a flat twist and just revoke, <laughs> rebuke and revoke all of this in Jesus' name. Because he would not have it. He would not have it. He would be coming for Trump hardcore, quick step. We step away from our body politic and talk about the politics of our bodies, policing bodies, big, beautiful women, to be precise. Lane Bryant, an American retailer for plus-sized women, has a new advert. It features plus-sized models in underwear, rocking denim clothing, working out, a mother breastfeeding her child. The 30-second ad is called This Body, and it highlights the different functions bodies serve. Take a listen to the words here. This body. This body. This body. Made for turning heads. This body is made for proving them wrong. It's made for being bald, powerful, and sexy. This body. This body. This body is made for love. This body. It's made for rocking denim. This body is made for style. It's made for living. It's made for getting it on. This body. <laughs> It's made for breaking the mold. This body is made for starting a revolution. What's your body made for? This body was made for revolution. The so far unaired ad was sent to mainstream television networks, NBC and ABC. According to news reports, the ad was rejected, citing, quote, indecency, unquote. The rejection and the reason hit the headlines. ABC and NBC claimed they wanted, quote, edits, unquote, before they would air the ad. Folks cited other ads, e.g. Victoria's Secret, an underwear company whose models regularly hit the television screens in underwear, but seemingly no edit or banning happens there. So let's talk policing bodies. Monifa Bandele, let me start with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a couple of things there. There's so many complex issues. You know, one is what I see as like a corporation and the continued practice of, you know, basically objectifying women's bodies to sell whatever, clothes, cars, all of this stuff. Um, when you hear the words of the ad, yes, it is very empowering. It's using a lot of the language of the movement of, um, of women who are really trying to turn the corner on how um, beauty is defined um, globally 
and within our communities. But again, we do know that behind, you know, this is like a corporate ad, right? And this is a corporation trying to use whatever to sell, to sell their products. Um, the response from the networks is exactly what, you know, we see all the time. And I'm, I'm completely uh, not surprised. I saw a really a prominent blogger on social media talking about something very similar the other day where, you know, she was asked to model um, swimwear and some other people were asked to model swimwear. They were given bikinis. She was given a one-piece. She's plus size. And she was like, well, I want a bikini too. And the response was like, oh, yeah, but we want the ad to be okay for, like, families and children. It's like, well, these other women have bikinis, you know. So this fact that because her body is larger, it makes her more indecent, you know, is a whole nother uh, layer of, of oppressing women. Um, because on one hand, you're saying that we're not beautiful or we're not attractive if we're plus size. But then if I show my plus size body, somehow that's more indecent than someone who's a small size. You know, these mixed messages contribute to so much um, hurt and pain within communities of women all across ethnicities and race. Um, And I think that both networks should be ashamed of themselves. Dr. Brittany Cooper? I'm outraged. Uh, I'm a plus-size woman. Uh, I shop uh, at Lane Bryant. It's one of the few stores uh, that I can consistently shop at to buy clothes that uh, don't make me look like I'm somebody's grandmother, Uh, you know, at the ripe old age of 35, which is why that matters. Uh, And so... I appreciate any new representations in the mainstream that try to celebrate bodies that are bigger, uh, especially since the you know average size of an American woman is a size 14, uh, which is plus size. Uh, so there is, so there are also the problems that Monifa points to, right? That the, that this is uh, corporate, uh, what we might call, or what some have called feminist consumerism. So it tries to use, tries to sell us a notion of women's empowerment uh, by selling us products that women uh, use and need. And, and that means that there's a limit to how revolutionary such an ad can be. And I don't think that we should concede that the Lane Bryant ad has any revolutionary potential um, as a kind of corporate branding strategy. But I do think that representation matters. Uh, and it's really deeply interesting that on the one hand, we live in a culture that absolutely despises fat. Uh, it despises fat women. Uh, it blames women for having bodies that are not slender and skinny. But at the same time, typically the culture looks at fat as being unattractive and asexual. So it is so interesting to me that now the deeply sexualized narrative of indecency is being attached to these fat bodies because usually fat bodies are seen as maternal um, and are seen as the kind of bodies that no, that no man would desire in a, in a heterosexual context. Uh, And so part of what's interesting is that this is about fat women actually perhaps playing with the possibility that that they could be sexy and that they could inhabit their bodies as sexy bodies. So we don't actually have a cultural narrative in which we see fat bodies as indecent. Typically they are seen as being not sexual at all. And so I read this commercial as really trying to um, police fat women and to say to us, you don't get to be sexy. That's not a narrative that you can claim. Get back in your lane. Uh, Be fully covered. Uh, because there's not a problem, as you point out, when Victoria's Secret models show their bodies, because that is seen as an acceptable form of being sexual and of being hypersexualized. Uh, and, and, you know, so there's a, 
kind of injustice here uh, that is hard because certainly, again, there are the limits of the corporate, but there's also this sense that we don't want fat women to love their bodies. We want them to always be standing in judgment and to always be self-hating. And so any attempt to help us to be celebratory and any attempt to say, look, look at the side of my stomach. I have rolls. I have flesh. As the movie says, real women have curves. Uh, is looked at as propagating an indecent narrative. And what's really indecent is making little girls grow up in a world where more likely than not their bodies are going to look something like some of the women in that Lane Bryant ad. Uh, And so making them feel like who they will grow up to be as young women in those bodies is indecent feels to me deeply unjust and outrageous. Uh, And it's And I also reject and rebuke the attempt to try to disconfirm my own sense of myself as a fat person who lives in a big body and sees and appreciates that body as beautiful. What's so um, interesting for me is that if we globalize this um, standard of beauty, I'm sitting here in Accra, Ghana, and um, I was showing some colleagues the ad, and they kept looking at the words plus-sized woman. They said to me, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? They were just wanting to know, can we order the underwear? Like, it looks really cool. Can we get it in Ghana? Like, could you get it online? There was, it was so interesting, both men and women. So I was sitting in an, in an office and I just played the ad for them. And then they were reading what it said. And it was really interesting in a culture where that term plus-sized is specifically um, Western. So for here in Ghana, they just saw phenomenally beautiful, sexy women. I mean, that's literally what was seen. And it was seen across the board. And we're talking about men and women from between the ages of, say, 20 to 20s to their mid 40s of all different sizes and shapes who just looked at it and thought that um, particularly the sister who's wearing a white bra top and uh, panties just looked phenomenal. And so I think about the specifically... Um, Americanized standard of beauty and that what it advocates has always been incredibly unhealthy. If you take the um, Hollywood image of beauty, which is unhealthy, it's unhealthy for bodies to be that frame. What it takes to get to that frame is unhealthy. And very often those women are unhealthy. So it's not an advocation of health ever and health centered approach ever. Um, But it is arguing that shame is the acceptable emotion for um, plus-size women when it comes to their um, bodies. We get to police and dictate that, and anything that comes our way or comes on our screens has to manifest those realities. And I also think, I think of um, Serena Williams, when I think about the idea is that your, your body has these multiple purposes. Um, and I think of Serena Williams and all the ways in which she's, her body was, is critiqued as not being feminine, as not being beautiful. And she talks about her body, every part of her body serves a particular um, purpose. But then I also think about Joan Morgan's pleasure politics. And I think, yes, every part of her body does serve a purpose. And one of those purposes is pleasure. And finding pleasure in the side of her own body is a powerful, beautiful, and necessary thing. Um, Affirmation and representation matters for everybody. Everybody is um, better when they see versions of themselves in whatever world they move in. Um, And so we rebuke NBC and uh, ABC for banning um, this ad that says my body is my body was made for revolution. I think we should all sing Kendrick Lamar's I love myself. I love myself.
police And I rock on a corner and I line full of fiend And a bottle full of lean and I model on a scheme, yeah These days of frustration keep y'all on tuck and rotation I duck these cold faces, post up, feed five, four, four faces Dreams are reality's peace Blow steam in the face of the beast The sky can fall down, the wind can cry down The strong in me, I still smile I love myself The world is a ghetto, big guns and your hour. Thank you to Dr. Brittany Cooper and Monifa Bandele. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Armour. Put the spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin. Your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.